0: Today's text is a swirl of two flavors. The taste of joy in hearing about God's covenantal commitment to us, blended with the challenge of Christian discipleship, which is sometimes hard to swallow. We must hear both the good news that Jesus speaks to us and also the discomforting, sometimes, calling that God issues us. And if this doesn't work well, I'll just speak without it. Okay. I'll try that. Mark's Gospel contains our reading for today and it has a threefold prediction of Jesus' passion in chapters 8, 9, and 10 which ruins in the disciples' view Jesus victorious march toward enthronement and the defeat of the Roman hegemony. The 12 in Mark cannot or do not want to comprehend what Jesus is talking about in these predictions. Today we hear the second in this triad of foreshadowings, followed by a demonstration of what it must mean for those who follow Jesus. Let's listen for God's word from the Gospel of Mark. They went through Galilee, Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus didn't want anyone to know their whereabouts, for he wanted to teach the disciples. He told them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed to people who want nothing to do with God. They will murder him, and three days after his murder, he will rise alive. They didn't know what he was talking about, but they were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was safe at home, he asked them, what were you discussing on the road? The silence was deafening. They had been arguing with one another over who was the greatest. He sat down, And summoned the twelve, and he said, You want to be in first place? Then take the last place, the servant of all. He put a child in the middle of the room, and cradling the little one in his arms, he said, Whoever embraces one of these children as I do, embraces me. And more than that, embraces God who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm guessing that I'm not the only one here who has found it exceedingly difficult to stomach the images and stories in the news lately about refugees and immigrants desperate to make it to a safe place and build a new life One cannot fail to be touched by such scenes of suffering or be amazed by the courage and strength displayed by the men, women, and children trying to escape the chaos of the Middle East or places in Africa or the drug violence in Mexico and Central America and the grinding poverty of their several homelands. All of this global moving around presents a dilemma. Few cultures have ever been able to accommodate people of other languages, customs, and religions. One of the most difficult issues in human interaction is the presence of the stranger. Even when we share language and culture and place, we still often reduce those Who are different from us to something less than us. I started thinking about all the ways that we could say we are different or that people identify themselves in different ways. For example, we have gators and seminoles. We we have those who love reality TV and those who try to avoid it at all costs. We have those who are high church and low church. We have the 8.30 people and the 11 o'clock people. We have the people who wanted mellow mushroom and the people who didn't. The people who like having post in college one way and the people who want it two ways. We have workers and the unemployed. We have those who want to drill more and those who want to stop drilling so many ways that we could identify ourselves over against some other group. And it just almost seems like human nature, my nature anyway, to say that those other people are sometimes just a little less insightful, a little less industrious, less honest, less worthy, less innocent. Not that I'm innocent, they're just less innocent. And so I pose a question this morning. Whether our religious faith encourages and empowers us to welcome these others, or does it point in the direction of exclusion and the exercise of power over the other? I'm going to focus on Jesus in a few minutes, but I want to start in Genesis. God is portrayed as creating through separating and binding together. There is a formless void, things are all mixed together, and then God starts distinguishing light from dark, land from water, and so on and so on. And at the same time, God binds together binds human beings in relationship to each other binds human beings as stewards of creation and binds God's self to us as bearers of God's image the differentiation of creation is a separating with a binding suggesting that our individual identity and fulfillment involves covenantal Connections. The Croatian theologian Maroslav Wolf has written these words, the human self is formed not simply through the rejection of the other, through a binary logic of opposition and negation, but through a complex process of taking in and keeping out. We are who we are, not because we are merely separate from others, but also because we are both distinct and related. I am Bill Hoff, both because I am not you and because I am connected to you and shaped by you. So if this is God's intention for creation then maybe sin could be seen as an attempt to deny the interdependence of all things, to, to implode creation back into a formless void. This is what happened in the old story of Cain and Abel where Cain denied that he was his brother's keeper. In Jesus' day, sinners were not just people who did bad things, they were whole classes of people. They were Gentiles and Samaritans, people who practiced, despised trades, who had diseases, who were social outcasts. The religious or righteous person had to separate from these people or they would be defiled because those people were defiled. Into this Culture and this religious atmosphere, Jesus, the bearer of grace, renamed behavior that was falsely labeled sin, such as eating certain foods called unclean, but they really weren't, or naming someone unclean because they had a flow of blood, but they really weren't. And he remade things as clean and new which really were unclean such as Zacchaeus and Levi and Mary of Magdala Jesus renamed and remade and in this ministry he confronts the false pure the sin of false purity and exposed the politics of purity that distances and categorizes people and and, and distorts the humanity of creation. Usually justified with good religious reasons. That's what the Pharisees were experts at, justifying the exclusions. Wolf observes, In a world so manifestly drenched with evil, Everybody is innocent in their own eyes. While I may accept some responsibility for some of the problems, others are even more to blame. And so, my retaliation or my fences, my separation barriers, whether physical or legal or psychological, they're justified, they're necessary. Where does this leave us with today's story? Jesus has pulled his close friends aside and confided in them that he is going to be arrested and executed in Jerusalem, the city that spits out prophets and rejects God's Messiah. Not only do they not get it, they're even afraid to ask for clarification. To make matters worse, They change the subject and focus on themselves. I'm the greatest, because I was the first one to be called by Jesus, said Andrew. No, I'm the greatest, said John, because I was right there in the room when he raised that little girl from death to life. I saw it. You didn't. And then there was Judas. I'm the greatest. You know that, because I handle the bank account. Jesus figured out pretty quickly what they were talking about, that they were trying to arrange a pecking order with themselves on top. They were trying to distinguish themselves in some way to establish a basis for separation and superiority from their peers so that they could be privileged. And so he enacted a parable in good prophetic fashion. He put a child on his lap. And he said, when you welcome one of these little ones, you welcome me. And you welcome the God who sent me. Now, you may think, well, that's not such a big deal. I mean, our children are really cute. I mean, look at all those wonderful kids that just came up here a few minutes ago. Steve had no problem welcoming them. We love having them here. It's not hard to welcome kids. They're pretty highly regarded in our culture, at least in most places. But in Jesus' time, children were not so highly valued or prized. The child in Jesus' parable represents whomever in a given society is of low value, who is regarded as expendable, unneeded, unimportant, perhaps even a drain on our limited resources. The child in Jesus' lap stands for the one who is dependent, who is not pulling their own weight, who is not really a priority, maybe even is a threat to our order and prosperity. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Invest in these people says Jesus I have some friends and you may be among the people the many people that I that I know that are really into garage sales and collecting junk. And I have a couple of friends who have no sense of dignity. They they will dive into dumpsters and people's trash cans and look for hidden treasures. It's amazing uh, what value some people can see, and other people's garbage and leftovers. It's it's that old saying, one person's trash is another person's treasure. In his book, The Dignity of Difference, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs asserts, there is one belief more than any other that is responsible for the pain of so many individuals on the altars of great historical ideals. It is the belief that those who do not share my faith or my race or my ideology or my language do not share my humanity. And if they are somehow a little less human, then it is a short step to the necessity for double fences or quotas. The world of covenantal relationships created by God has been replaced by competitive ones defined by the marketplace and geopolitical lines. That's the world system that could not tolerate Jesus' embrace. And so it put him to death, or so it thought in his obedience unto death jesus refused to participate in the dehumanizing of his opponents or those who were different from him in fact he embraced them father forgive them while he he said while he was bleeding jesus embraced little children But he also embraced the Roman centurion and the demon-possessed man from the other side of the lake. And as he embraced them, so he welcomes us. It is like the arms of God enfolding us. We, who also are unworthy or may not be so pure, God welcomes us. The ultimate insider, Paul, said to his own friends, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for the ungodly. And so the embrace of Christ is the good news that is meant for us so that our heart might be changed by the embrace of God. We would do well to meditate on that image of being held in the lap of of our heavenly parent, being held in loving arms. Maybe we should just think about that this week and let that sink into our hearts. Then shall we be empowered to embrace the so-called low-value ones of the world. For that is the path to greatness in the kingdom of God, welcoming the little child, the teen offender, the old and tired and worn-out one, the one who needs a place to lay her head at night or take a shower in the day even one's enemy. Martin Luther King said these words, Along the way of life, someone must have some sense enough and some morality enough to cut off the chain of evil and hate. I believe that love is a transforming power that can lift a whole community Do you believe that?